Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and for Easter we are praying the Regina Chaley. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Hallelujah. The Son whom you merited to bear. Hallelujah. Has risen as he said. Hallelujah. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Hallelujah. For the Lord has truly risen. Hallelujah. Let us pray. O God, who through the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, did vouchsafe to give joy to the world, grant, we beseech you, that through his mother, the Virgin Mary, we may obtain the joys of everlasting life through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about the Shroud of Turin, and then begins our month-long series on the matriarchs of the Old Testament, starting with Sarah, the wife of Abraham and a woman of great faith. Afterwards, Bishop answers questions from listeners on topics including illegal immigrants, how we can improve our reverence during Mass, the root causes of the child abuse scandals, and how to negotiate living as a Catholic in a culture of instant gratification. If you have a question for a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, staying safe, staying away from large groups of people. Yes, I, I try to keep a distance. That's why I hope you've been careful, Kyle, so you don't spread the virus to me. I'm, I'm being as careful as I can. Wash my hands right before I came in here. Oh, good, good. So, excellent. Any thoughts about how and when mass might go back to normal? We're waiting and have had some communication with Governor Holcomb, actually. Okay. So, I really don't know. I kind of personally feel that a number is not always helpful in our situation because we have some churches that 50 people would be too many. Right. You know, a little church right. where you couldn't have social distancing if you had 50 people in it. But then we have other large churches that could fit a thousand or more people uh -huh. where we could accommodate a couple hundred people with appropriate social distancing. So I don't think the number is really the important thing. I think more is the safety that you see, okay, what is the most reasonable thing that you can continue to have social distancing and, and the other proper precautions, the disinfecting and all of that that needs to be done. Do you imagine that there'll still be the dispensation for those that might be more vulnerable, especially, but people that are, are wanting to, to play it safe yeah. rather than... Yeah. yeah, I would definitely continue to dispense from the Sunday obligation uh, for that very reason. Yeah. And there might be times, you know, if we still have limits in the numbers, it may, you know, it could be no fault of someone that they can't get sure. in if we don't have, you know, I would, I would think that maybe some parishes we could increase the number of masses. That would be another way that more people could come, but mm -hmm. it may not be possible for even people who, who want to go to mass. Sure. So, so anyhow, yeah, I would expect that to continue until this ends. All right. Well, one of the things that we celebrated recently, this past Monday, was the Feast of the Holy Shroud, which I don't feel like there was a, a whole lot of buildup for it. No, you know, to be honest, Kyle, 
I never heard of the Feast of the Holy oh, okay. Shroud. I, I presume you're talking about the Shroud of Turin. I yeah. I can do a Google search to make sure. Okay, why don't you do that and see if there's any authorization for such a feast? Is it, because so, we is don't it observe up? it in the United States. Oh, interesting. Maybe they observe it in Italy. Uh, this actually says, the official feast of the Holy Shroud occurs May 4th every year, although not celebrated widely in the U.S. It's a very important date in parts of Europe. Really? And which pope would have authorized this? <laughs> I have no idea. So, Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Shroud of Turin? Like, describe it and things. What well, do you know from, about it? From my understanding, is that it is believed to be, and there's been all kinds of studies that that seem to verify it, but I don't know that it's been officially declared as as for sure. But it seems to be the the burial cloth of Jesus, that the wounds that are evident by the cloth match up with the description of Jesus' crucifixion. And also there's unexplainable phenomena, if you will, regarding the cloth that seems like light passed through it and that it's, instead of it being a positive, it's a negative right. of it and, and things that they can't, explained by natural means, which seems like a miracle happened around which we would associate with the resurrection. Yeah, it kind of some kind of thermonuclear reaction occurred that caused the image. Huh. I mean, that's what I've read. I mean, it's, it's really perplexes uh, scientists even. But then, you know, I heard, Kyle, that they did a carbon dating testing back in 1988, which said that basically it it originated it showed that it was from the Middle Ages, kind of debunking the authenticity of the shroud. You know this radiant radiocarbon thing that they did. How would you respond to that objection that carbon dating shows that the shroud really didn't go back to that time? Uh, I I would have to defer to the scientists on that one. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know the thing is. You know, there's still no explanation of how this thing, you know, this negative, like how could the medievals have done such a forgery? You uh -huh. know, like how, I mean, they can't figure it out. No, no medieval artist had that kind of a skill. They didn't even have the knowledge of anatomy back then to do the, the parts of the body if they painted something. And, hmm. and they wouldn't even have known details of crucifixion because it had been outlawed for many, many centuries. There are no pigments or paints, dyes or stains. It's the images only on the top fibers, no penetration to the lower ones. Hmm. That would have happened if it was paint. So it doesn't seem that it could be a medieval forgery, although that's what some claim it to be. So a lot of those scientists who say, well, this carbon dating could be inaccurate because remember, they only cut a little two by three inch strip from the the shroud, which was not in the central part. It was from a corner. And of course, the shroud had been through a lot of uh, fire and uh, a later they had, you know, it was scorched by a fire. There were other things, candles, etc., nearby. And so it could be that it, it was contaminated, you know? So that's when mm. maybe the little piece that they did the carbon testing on, you know, it could have been bacteria and fungi. That has happened sometimes when they've done carbon testing where there was a coating that was caused by bacteria and fungi that would have been kind of like plaque on our teeth that it's a coating that huh. could grow. 
so many people had handled the shroud. So those who defend its authenticity would would say, well, there's reasons why this carbon dating said it was only from the Middle Ages. So there's a lot more now, a lot more who are questioning the accuracy of the carbon dating because of other explanations for it having that medieval dating. So I'm not an expert on this, to be honest. I mean, I, these are kind of the, uh, just kind of in general, I think, I think this has been discussed on the Dr. Doctor show where they get in a lot more detail. Yeah, they actually had an expert on there and he did a two-parter. It was One came out and then kind of the coronavirus stuff came out and they switched to focus on that for a little bit and then they went back and, and did a, a follow-up episode, the part two on that. So if, if people want to go into real great depth on the science and the history of it, that'd be a good way to, to find that. Yeah. Now, of course, there's the church doesn't have any official teaching on this. It's a matter really for science and uh, as far as its authenticity. But from the perspective of faith, it is an amazing thing that, you know, to have such a, a shroud. I mean, I tend to believe because there's no natural explanation for right. it. But anyhow, it's still in Turin, and think the Pope, didn't Pope Francis allow it to be recently put on public display, wasn't it, during Holy Week? Yeah, and I, I think that's a rare thing, right? It, I think it was not... because of the pandemic, yeah. It's only okay. every so many years right. that it's it's open for public display. So you, you think it's probably the real thing? Yeah, I mean, the fact that you look at it, and I mean, it's just... There, there's no, it's such a mysterious image that it looks like, you know, how could this have, how could human hands have done this? Mm -hmm. There's no explanation for it other than maybe, like he said, a blast of radiation from the power of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't say I have certitude on that. I don't know. But yeah. until they find some other, you know, is there any other explanation that would be satisfying? And have you seen it in person? No, I okay. never had that opportunity. I was in Torin once and I saw where it was kept, but I didn't. And they probably uh, had replicas of it there right, or, or images did. of yeah. it. And I've seen images, exact images. Yeah. When I was in Jerusalem, they had this little museum at the Notre Dame Center, which they had a lot of pictures and explanations. And it gets kind of complicated. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, researchers, I mean, this, this, this shroud has been studied, it's been examined, it's been researched so many times, and it still remains a mystery. Right, right. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Our Lady of Guadalupe and yeah. the Tilma. Just can't explain some of this, and right. really does seem like it was miraculous. Yep. And yep. science gets... A little confused sometimes, like, this doesn't make sense. Right. Well, sometimes right. miraculous things don't make sense. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up, we'll begin a series talking about mothers of the Old Testament, starting with Sarah. And we have some listener-submitted questions as well here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and it is currently May. And this is a month to celebrate our Blessed Mother, as we talked about last week. But I really like this idea of a month of celebrating motherhood, and Mother's Day is coming up as well. Talking about some of the Old Testament mothers, uh, these sometimes prefigures of Mary, maybe you would say. And some of the, especially whenever you're talking about infertility and stuff, there's some 
things that kind of seem yeah. to foreshadow a little bit of Mary's experience. So I thought maybe we could start today with Sarah, breaking down yeah. a little bit about her. Uh, great. You know, I, I think the biblical matriarchs get neglected. You know, we think of the history of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. But we should know also the history of the matriarchs, these great women who, you know, they were part of this history of salvation. And the first of them is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Of course, she was the mother of Isaac. She had an important part in the the birth of the of the people of God, the people of Israel. She was a half-sister of Abraham as well, by the way. You know, they had, according to the book of Genesis, they had the same father, but a different mother. Hmm. So this is an interesting thing. One of the things we know about Sarah from reading the book of Genesis is she was very troubled in her heart because she was barren. She was sterile. She had no child. At that time in antiquity in Israel, as in other cultures, infertility or barrenness was a humiliation, you know, even seen as a curse. Women who were infertile were really felt rejected by society, but even by God. So this was a very difficult situation to be in. So after Abram, before he was called Abraham, God changed his name. Mm -hmm. Sarah also, her name was Sarai. Mm -hmm. God changed her name to Sarah. So when it was Abram and Sarai, they left Ur of the Chaldeans. God had called them to a new land and they obeyed. They had a long journey. There was a drought at one point and Abram decided to go to Egypt in order to escape the drought. He asked Sarah to, you know, to go with him. And he said that she, could, she should identify herself to the Egyptians as his sister, not his wife. Evidently, she was quite beautiful. And he, Abraham was a, Abram was afraid that the Pharaoh, you know, in order to get Sarai, would have him killed, would have Abram killed. Mm -hmm. So he said, just say you're my sister. Sarai did that. Uh, she wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about her husband. But of course, she was exposing herself to, to becoming one of the Pharaoh's concubines, so to speak, part of his harem. But God intervened and was displeased with what happened and kind of protected Sarah so that uh, she wasn't taken. And he intervened and the Pharaoh learned that she was actually the wife and he let them both go. Anyhow, that was one of the ordeals in the, in the journey, but I, I think in many ways it kind of gives, sheds a good light on Sarah and uh, how she loved her husband. But she still suffered from this childlessness, and uh, she decided to, feeling so bad, she decided, and this wasn't unusual according to the laws at that time, being barren, that she presented her husband with a slave and one of her own handmaids named Hagar and Abraham could have conjugal union with her and the child would be considered their own. Sarai did that and Abram took Hagar and they had a son named Ishmael. This became a source of suffering for Sarai because Hagar was kind of arrogant towards her after that make a long story short, 
Sarai also mistreated her, uh, and Hagar had to flee into the desert. And anyhow, you can read all about that in the book of Genesis. But it was after the birth of Ishmael, Abram's first child, that God established a covenant with Abraham, changed his name to Abraham from Abram, and, and promised that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations. Well, he didn't have, you know, with, with Sarai, he didn't have a son. Also, at that point, God changed her name to Sarah, which, by the way, means princess in Hebrew. So they both were open to God's plan. A new chapter began in their life. God promised Abraham that his wife Sarah would bear a child. Now, by that time, Abram was 100 years old, and he laughed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wouldn't you laugh? Sarah also laughed. Uh, She was 90, I think. you know, she knew that her time for having children was long past. Anyhow, in some ways, that laughter was a bit of, um, showed kind of their incredulity that they really didn't believe this. And then God, the guest who had appeared, one of the, in the story said, is anything too hard for the Lord? These were the three guests, one of the three guests that visited Abraham. If you remember that story, they were all male. There was all kinds of opinions about if if they represented the Trinity or were they angels, whatever. But in any case, uh, Sarah laughed. It was kind of a reprimand when the the messenger said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Um, But interestingly, when Isaac was born, the name Isaac means child of laughter. So, but then we find Sarah laughing again when she actually bore her son Isaac, it says that the Lord opened her womb and she laughed with joy. Hmm. So this was a true joy. This wasn't that kind of incredulous right. thing. This was real joy. Her, This dream that she had became true. Something impossible had happened and, and she's no longer ashamed. It, she was no longer barren. So it's, it's really interesting to read these Old Testament stories and, and to think about these great matriarchs. They weren't perfect any more than the patriarchs were perfect. I remember when I was in Israel a couple years ago, I always wanted to visit Hebron, the city where they have the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs like Abraham and Sarah. Huh. And the first time that I went to Israel as a seminarian, as we were going to Hebron, our bus got, it's a very dangerous area, so they were throwing rocks at our bus so we couldn't get out. The next time, I think I was only in the Holy Land a few times, but the next time, it was t- totally off limits. It's a dangerous area. And finally, the last time I was in the Holy Land with CRS, we could get anywhere with CRS, I did get to Hebron and got to, to go to the tomb of the patriarchs and prayed there at the tombs of of Abraham and Sarah was really neat. That was the only place where you know, the, the, I wasn't allowed to wear my pectoral cross, and it's a very tense place. The Arabs, the Palestinians, very much segregated. There were only certain streets they could walk on, and the Israeli soldiers were everywhere. It's kind of a dangerous area. But I finally got there and got to see the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. So I think it'll be interesting to continue to learn about these Old Testament women. And I guess maybe the next next show we'll talk about 
other matriarchs, but it was good talking about Sarah. My grandmother's name was Sarah. Okay. I have a cousin, Sarah. There's, I've, there's various people in our family named Sarah, so that's kind of a special person in the Old Testament to talk about for me. What would you say is the main takeaway that we should be learning from her story, her example of what maybe what to do or what not to do? <laughs> well, I mean, I think her greatness is very similar to her husband's. I mean, she did trust in the Lord. She accompanied her husband when they left or and they believed in God's promise. She was a woman of faith. I mean, she had that doubt about conceiving, but, you know, they both laughed at that time. But then her laughter was, was real joy when the actual promise was fulfilled and she gave birth. I think her selflessness when they went to Egypt is a, a good model that she didn't want harm to come to her husband. So she kind of s- sacrificed herself. I'm trying to think some other things we could learn from. I guess patience Sarah. too, if she had to wait until nineties yeah. Yeah. to have the, the yeah. child she was hoping for. Yeah. And, and when she, when there were difficulties, you know, she didn't uh, cower. She was a strong woman. Um, even though she wasn't perfect, neither was Abraham perfect. You know, she was able to overcome difficulties that, that came about. And even though she doubted God at that one belief, didn't doubt. She Hmm. usually responded with faith. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we have some questions about illegal immigration, same-sex marriage, transgenderism. Basically, you aren't getting off very easily today. (laughs) That's coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you've submitted for him to answer. Uh, All the questions in this episode came from the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. We had a whole episode on that, but there were a lot of questions that we didn't get to. So we'll try to crank through some of them today. First question, what is a Catholic person's responsibility when dealing with known illegal immigrants? Interesting question. Well, I think, number one, we have a responsibility to recognize their dignity as human persons. I think oftentimes if we meet with people who are immigrants, how do we know whether they're legal or illegal, documented or undocumented? Mm -hmm. You know, every person I meet, I just treat them as my brother and sister in Christ because that's their fundamental identity. I don't know what more the questioner had in mind. Yeah, I don't look at people's legal status. I look at them as sons and daughters of God and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I guess if somebody told you that they, they were here illegally, would there be any obligation that we would have as Catholics to, to do anything about that? Oh, no, I don't think, no. Okay. I mean, I think an obligation, I mean, my sense is if I meet someone that I learn is in that situation, I would try to offer to help them mm-hmm. to see if they can get their situation corrected it, would there be a path for their legalization? That's I try to help them that way, especially since we offer those kinds of services. I was going to say, legal is that assistance. something that Catholic Charities helps with? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right, another Rekindle the Fire conference attendee asked, 
How do we best deal with same-sex marriage and transgenderism in our society? Well, that's a huge question. I think we've talked often about the church's teaching in the area of, of same-sex marriage, so-called same-sex marriage, and the whole transgender issue. Have we talked on this show about gender ideology and some of the challenges, yes. yeah. the moral issues involved? Mm -hmm. So I think one thing is that we need to be faithful to the church's teaching, to the truth, when it comes to marriage or when it comes to gender or mm -hmm. sex. But people who are in those situations are still people created in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. They deserve our respect and our love, but we can't approve of a lifestyle that would contradict or be in opposition mm -hmm. to what we believe, to what has been revealed, to the teachings of the church. So it's always love the sinner and hate the sin. Yeah, how we best deal with it, I guess we look at it on, on a personal level, we should always show love and respect mm -hmm. for others, even if they're living a lifestyle that we oppose. What about on a political level or a, you know, a secular acceptance of it? Is this something that we should be outspoken about against it? Right. Or is it... I think you'd have to look at what you're talking what we're talking about for example no matter what lifestyle someone is is living even if it's an immoral lifestyle they still have certain rights as human beings sure. you know the right for example to healthcare mm -hmm. so we would never want to fight against those kind of rights we would actually support these basic human rights mm -hmm. where it becomes a little bit problematic where there might be laws or ordinances that want to give special rights that infringe upon our beliefs and our religious liberty. For example, attempts to force Catholic institutions not to discriminate when it comes to hiring teachers. Well, we won't hire teachers who are living in a way that is directly opposed to our teachings. Mm -hmm. That includes not just those in same-sex marriages or have undergone, uh, quote, sex change, which isn't really, you know, you can't really change your sex, but have gone through sex reassignment surgery or something like that. Mm -hmm. No, we would not hire them. Does this mean we don't care about them or we don't love them? No. But they're living in open violation of our teachings. Mm -hmm. And... It'd be the same with heterosexuals. I mean, if a, if a Catholic is divorced and remarried outside the church, they're not allowed to teach either in mm -hmm. our schools. So we need to have the freedom to hire those who abide by our teachings because we expect them to really be role models for the children in our schools. So that's where, you know, you have to kind of look at, every, at the different issues and see... Um, there's also unjust discrimination, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, I don't think they should be people who are living in these kinds of lifestyles should, should be discriminated against when it comes to other rights, you know, for example, as I mentioned, healthcare right. would be an example. So anyhow, it gets a little, uh, so you look at just versus unjust discrimination. Yeah. It's not the same thing as race, you know, like there's no justification for racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. But this is not racial, we're not talking about racial, that kind of discrimination here. We're talking not about something that's 
innate to the person. We're talking about something that is a lifestyle choice. Right. Yeah. Now, some would say, well, I didn't choose my sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying that they've chosen that or not, but they've chosen a lifestyle. Right. Yeah. All right. Our next question. What is one thing we can do to improve our reverence during Mass? What is one thing we can stop doing to improve our reverence during Mass? And maybe if I could add, this was written before the coronavirus. And uh-huh. so maybe with respect to when we're able to attend Mass in person, as well as how we can be more reverent at home when we're watching Mass online or, or streaming. One way to improve reverence, I think, is to spend some minutes in prayer before Mass begins. Hmm. Because I think that helps us to focus our mind and our heart on the mystery that we are about to celebrate. I think one can enter into greater communion with the Lord if one prays before Mass begins. And that naturally makes one more attentive and reverent during the actual celebration. I think also during Mass itself, the reverence that should be there when one approaches Holy Communion. Mm -hmm that one really be conscious that they're going to receive the body and blood of the Lord. And therefore, walking up that aisle to communion, that should be one's focus. It always drives me crazy if people are coming up to communion and greeting people in the pews as they're walking up. I mean, they're coming to receive the Lord Jesus. It's not a time to be saying hello to others. One should be focused on the Lord. As far as what to stop doing, for example, to resist the temptation to be talking with others a lot before Mass, to be socializing. Mm-hmm. They can do that before coming into the church, but that shouldn't be going on inside the church. It's also disturbing to others who right. are trying to pray at that time. So that's one thing that comes to mind, uh, having more of an atmosphere of silence and prayer within the church. So that idle chatter that can happen sometimes, or I'm not saying you can't whisper good morning to somebody or Mm -hmm. a nod of the head or good morning, how are you, very quietly, but not to start a conversation when, you know, other people are trying to pray. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop... We'll answer more questions here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that were submitted at the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. Someone asked, what do you think is the root cause of the child abuse scandals in our church? I think it's better to do the plural uh, causes, Um, and there's a lot of debate on this. You know, I would say that there's there there are a lot of different opinions. I remember it was some years ago when when Pope Benedict was was still Pope. He put forth as one of the chief reasons for the abuse crisis, the scandal was moral relativism and the moral relativism of society that there's you know things are not fundamentally good or evil but just relative value judgments of different people he pointed that out as one of the chief reasons and i think that probably is 
could be seen as as one of the causes is is moral relativism. Although, even before the sexual revolution and a lot of moral relativism, we had the problem of mm. child sexual abuse. So, it's one factor. Another would be some say, well, the way seminary training was so poor and screening of of healthy men for the priesthood was one of the causes. And I think that's true. I think there were, when you think years ago, there wasn't much about trying to figure out if a man had the capacity for chaste celibacy or that he was healthy in that area of mm-hmm. sexuality. We're much, much better on that now. Sure. But clearly there were men who had problems who should never have been accepted to the seminary. Now it's hard through psychological testing to predict to, to find if someone's gonna has a problem in that area, but mm-hmm. but you can also do a case history. I mean, there could be more stringent uh, screening, which is happening today. Whenever I'm asked what I think is the number one problem cause, I think it's that these men who ended up abusing minors had psychosexual problems. Mm-hmm somehow their psychosexual growth was stunted in that time of teenage years, adolescence, because that's who the great majority of these cases were abuse of, of teenagers, you know, Hmm. wasn't pre puberty, you know, they'll, they'll call it the pedophilia scandal. Well, I think from studies have shown that only 6% of victims were under the age of puberty. In other words, that were actually prepubescent. So, so only 6% were pedophilia. Hmm. So I think that's kind of a misnomer that's out there. Okay. Uh, most of these cases were with teenagers, with those who were post-pubescent. And sometimes that's called ephebophilia. There was this sexual attraction to teenagers. So I think somewhere along the line, these men were stunted in their own psychosexual development. Mm. It's interesting, though, ephebophilia, which is obviously illegal sexual sexual conduct with, with minors, is against the law and should be. It's aberrant. It's terrible. But it's interesting that in the current American psychiatric psychological community, they don't point to this as a psychological disorder. They don't mm. classify it as a pathology. I think that's really interesting. And I don't really agree with that. I think there I think it is a psychological problem. It's also important to note that 80% of these cases were homosexual. Now there's some who will say, well, that's the main cause of the sexual abuse crisis is gay priests and homosexuality. The John Jay report uh, disagreed with that, although they reported that 80% of the victims were male. They said it really wasn't a problem of homosexuality. Basically, one of the factors is that the priests had more access to boys, kind of like the analogy of men in prison who were homosexual behavior can be common, even though they're not homosexual. Hmm. It's just that that's the access is there. And that was the same for priests. That's how some explain it. Although I think, I don't think we should minimize the fact that 80% were homosexual. I don't think that that whole idea of greater access to boys, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to, 
explain it uh, mm-hmm. for me anyhow. Um, I, I think it needs to be considered as, as something that is significant. Again, I think that's also related to the psychosexual stunting mm-hmm. uh, that, that happened in that, those men's life. So what do you think would be the cause of that? Is that abuse that they were victims of or whether it be actual physical abuse or verbal or even maybe some kind of being exposed to things that had an impact on them, whether it be, you know, print media or today, you know, digital media that you consume, pornography, maybe things like that, that would have that effect on a person? Well, I think definitely we see that if they were abused themselves, that is definitely a factor. Uh-huh. We see a higher, much higher rate of incidence of abuse on the part of those who themselves were abused mm-hmm. as minors. But I also think that, and I've read this and some psychologists have wrote about how there's this starving for male affection. And mm. it can be that someone as a, a teenager himself, one of these abusers, when as a teenager, really felt ostracized and really starved for male affection and didn't have it from their father mm-hmm. or from their peers or from brothers, maybe were bullied, etc. And that left this longing for male acceptance and male affirmation, male affection. Mm-hmm. And that then gets filled later by their own sexual acting out with those at that age because they were stunted at that time. Mm-hmm. I've heard that, I've read about that. As I said, there's no, there's a variety sure. of causes, but I, I, that I find to be, you know, very possible, I think. Uh, but I don't think there's one cause for ever that's like for everyone. I mean, I think there's probably various causes. I wouldn't put everything on the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't put everything on homosexuality. I wouldn't put everything on these psychosexual problems in their own development. But I do think that, in my opinion, is probably the number one cause. The problem is that wasn't discerned. That wasn't seen when they entered seminary. Mm -hmm. And I think we're doing a much better job in that at this point. So I don't know if that answers your question. Now, some will blame celibacy. They'll say that's an unnatural state and... That, that there's a causative relationship between celibacy and, and, and this violation of minors. I don't believe that. You know, there's a lot of sexual abuse of minors that takes place by married people, mm-hmm. especially married men. Basically, abusing anyone, abusing minors in particular, is a grave violation of the promise of celibacy. There's nothing inherently unhealthy about celibacy, mm-hmm. uh, although some would claim there is, but I disagree with that. Some would also say um, that we would be helped by a greater presence of women in the structures of the church. I don't know if that would have helped prevent clerical sexual abuse, but there certainly were religious women in these parishes and schools. I do think it's helpful to have women, for example, on seminary faculties, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I don't think that a man studying for the priesthood should be hidden away from women. I would very much disagree with that. When I was a seminary rector, 
We had women professors. I thought it was healthy that we were on the campus of a co-ed university mm -hmm. so that the seminarians did interact with with the college-age women, appropriately, of course. Sure. No dating was allowed or anything like that. But I think it can be unhealthy if there's perhaps too much of a, if there's an absence of women in their lives at, at that time in their lives as well. Which was probably the case with some seminaries. Yeah, yep. Especially prior to the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Another question we got is, we live in a culture of instant gratification. This seems to be in direct conflict with the process slash journey associated with the Catholic faith. How do we reconcile the two? I don't think we can reconcile Catholic discipleship with instant gratification. You know, instant gratification, what does that mean? That means that right away we try to satisfy any appetite. Well, that is not a good thing. It's kind of like living one's life on the pleasure principle. It's the philosophy of hedonism, that you just satisfy every need, every desire, every desire for pleasure. Mm -hmm. You want to gratify, if you're hungry, you're, you're going to gratify that right away. If you have some sexual urge, you're going to you know, engage in that right away. No, we're, we have human reason. Okay, so when we come to decisions, it's not just about following our passions or our appetites. We have to follow human reason, which brings in the whole area of morality. It's not just about seeking pleasure or gratifying earthly desires. All right. Another listener said, in the gospel, Jesus says we cannot serve both God and mammon. Why is the word mammon used in this translation? Why not something simpler like money? Well, it's really a transliteration. The word in, in Greek is mammonas, which is translated into Latin as mammona, which means wealth or money. Okay. And I think sometimes in the translations of the Bible, we do a transliteration, like the word paraclete for okay. the Holy Spirit. Uh -huh. That's a transliteration. Now, sometimes you'll read in a Bible, instead of paraclete, they'll use the translation advocate uh -huh. or counselor or comforter. Well, that's, those are all different kinds of things. Uh -huh. so, so it's really better, I think, to transliterate paraclete so that you're not limiting the meaning. Okay. It's a broader meaning than a word that we can think of in English. Gotcha. So by saying the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, then you encompass all those meanings because we don't have an English word. Even if you see a translation that says advocate, there's more to it, mm -hmm. what, what it means in Greek. And probably by saying you cannot serve both God and mammon, it's not just money or wealth. It can also be the pursuit of gain. It, it has all of those connotations. So you will see some translations which will say you cannot serve both God and money, or you cannot serve both God and riches. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, sometimes it's good to keep the original Greek and say you cannot serve both God and mammon. I think it also sticks with this a little bit because it might make us ask, well, what is mammon? And make yeah. us think about it some more. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. We are out of time, but appreciate all of your wisdom again today, and we'll look forward to continuing talking about the mothers of the Old Testament next week. And also, people can check out your 
mass live streaming on Facebook and YouTube on Sunday mornings, as well as a lot of local parishes are are broadcasting as well. And we broadcast your mass on Redeemer Radio so people can follow along at home and hopefully people continue to keep holy the Sabbath, keep praying for uh, everything really going on in the world right now, but to keep in prayer and not have the social distancing be a time when we distance from the church as well. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there for this Sunday. Yes. Thank you, Bishop. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. To listen to previous episodes anytime, search for Truth in Charity on the Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast apps, or go to RedeemerRadio.com and click on Truth in Charity. While there, submit a question for a future episode. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.